Well, good morning, guys. It is so great to be back with you guys this morning. Hope you got a good night's rest with the extra hour of sleep. I know it really came in clutch for me and my wife. And um, by God's grace, I'm hoping that we have a really good Sunday school class today. We're going to be picking up where we left off, about halfway between Roman numeral 1 and 2 of the second lesson titled From Pentecost to Patmos. I will need a volunteer to read Acts 1-8, which is our memory verse for Lesson 2. Um, so just get a volunteer for that. Any takers? Acts 1-8. All right, thank you, Ellie. I appreciate you volunteering. As, as the old saying goes, the first one is always the hardest, so... Uh, we got the first volunteer read down. We'll be able to have so many um, eager volunteers, hopefully, for the rest of uh, this lesson. So let me pray. Elliot, read Acts 1.8, and then we're going to jump right back into where we left off last week. Let's pray. God, you have set apart each of us to be your ambassadors in this world, to not just be your ambassadors, Lord, but to also be part of your heavenly family as your adopted children. And I pray, Father, that that truth would permeate our minds and our hearts, that it would shape us into the men and women you've called us to be, that we would be motivated to live lives that are in keeping with your word, that are overflowing with with love to you and to our neighbor and good deeds, that authenticate the truthfulness of our faith. God, I pray that times as these, as we reflect just on the work that you accomplished in the first century church, that those truths would be an encouragement to us. As Paul says about the Old Testament, those things were written for our encouragement and our instruction so that we might have hope. It's the same with the New Testament, Lord. These truths not only are for our instruction, but they're for our encouragement. They're to propel us forward in our Christian faith. So God, I just pray that would be what happens this morning that as we read your word and as we talk about it, that we would be more motivated than ever before to press on, eagerly testifying to the work of Christ in our life and on behalf of all who would call upon his name and faith. Father, I pray that you would remove any distractions that might have been brought into this room. We all have many things going on in our personal lives. Many of these students have lots of things going on in their in their schoolwork and in their extracurriculars and relationships. Father, I pray you would remove distractions. I pray that this time would be spiritually refreshing as well as our corporate worship um, at 1045 or if, if other people were able to worship before Sunday school at the 815 service. Lord, I just pray that that would have been a time that um, has ministered to them and that as we seek to begin a new week, we would have wind in our sails to glorify you and to be good stewards of the task you've entrusted us. Bless this study now, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, um, Ellie, go ahead and read Acts 1-8 for us, and then I'm going to pick up literally right where we left off last week.
Thank you, Ellie, for reading that. So, um, as we left off last week, uh, I was reading a paragraph in my teacher's guide that has some scripture references, and I didn't want to really go much further than that last week because we were running out of time. I want to revisit some of these scriptures and uh, maybe revisit that final theme that we talked about, which is Christ appointing the apostles to be the, um, the foundation or the authority of the first century church. And as we know, they would go on to write um, the letters and the books that comprise our New Testament. So um, I just want us to reflect on that briefly before we move on. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to get through Roman numeral two by the end of our time together this morning. So let me go ahead and pick up uh, where we left off. I'm going to read that paragraph and I'm going to need two volunteers uh, to read. One will read John 14 verses 26 and 27. Get a volunteer for that. Hannah, thank you very much. And then John 16, 12 to 14. And Sai, you'll take that one. I really appreciate it, guys. So, boozing its notes in uh, my teacher's guide that Jesus gave his apostles unique authority in the church. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus revealed divine truth to them for the church. This revelation is recorded for us in their writings, which comprise the New Testament. Each New Testament book is either written directly by an apostle, like Matthew, John, or Paul, or by someone writing under an apostle's authority, like Mark, Luke, James, or Jude. Um, Hannah, go ahead and read that passage in John 14 just to reflect on that principle here. Yeah, just uh, John 14, 26, and 27. Very good. Um, so really quickly, briefly on that passage. Um, yeah, read verse 27. It's included here, but it really doesn't pertain much to that theme. But you can read it. I mean, that's an encouragement, right, that, um, that Jesus gives us peace and that we can have comfort uh, and in that context, we can have comfort in light of him going to the Father. But the, the real crux of that passage that I believe is important for us to consider is verse 26 of John 14. Notice, Jesus is telling his 11 disciples in the upper room, this is hours before he's going to be handed over to the Jewish and Roman officials to be crucified. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit is going to come to them, okay, his, his 11 disciples, and the Spirit is going to help them recall all of the things that would ultimately be written in the New Testament. Anything that is in our New Testament was recalled to mind by those 11 men so that they could either write those truths themselves in either their gospel account or in a letter that they wrote to a church, or... Uh, if some other disciple wrote a book or a letter, which, as we mentioned, Mark, Luke, James, and Jude are some examples. They were not in this room. They were not of the 11, but they were under the direct supervision uh, of the 11. They had close relationships to the 11. And in light of that, these men were able to write books. In the case of Mark and Luke, they wrote gospels, right? Uh, Jude and James, they wrote letters, so in all of those cases, these 11 disciples were able to come alongside them, help them think through the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus taught. And then in doing so, 
those men were then able to produce what we have in our New Testament. It's a remarkable work of God superintending, supervising the production of what would become our New Testament. Uh, Now, Sai, with that in mind, read us John 16, verses 12 through 14. Okay, so this is a powerful illustration of how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in harmony with one another to reveal divine truth to humanity. And that's exactly what we have in the Bible. We have the Spirit. Think about this. We have the Spirit coming to the eleven, those in the upper room, which is where these things are being said. The Spirit comes to the eleven. The Spirit testifies to the things that Jesus wanted them to say and teach. And what Jesus ultimately said and taught and accomplished in his earthly ministry is exactly what the Father had given for him to accomplish from eternity past. There is an interconnectedness amongst the persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit work as a, if I could use a modern term that some of you might be familiar with, they work as a team. They work unified and compatible with, or they, they are compatible with one another. They, are, they work in harmony with one another. They work in perfect, inseparable union to accomplish God's purposes for revealing Himself to humanity. Now, moving on now to uh, the next paragraph. I believe there's a blank in your workbooks. This would be under um, the first Roman numeral. Uh, I think I might have actually given you all the answers last week, but I'm going to review because we didn't get to go to these Scripture references. Buznitz notes that to authenticate their message, the message of the eleven, and then, of course, Matthias and Paul, who would become apostles later, God gave the apostles the ability, here's the answer to the blank, to perform miracles. Why do you think it would be important for these men to be able to perform supernatural works in the first century? What, was the, what do you think the significance of that would be? I mean, think of Matt, Michael. To show them that they were truly those whom Jesus had had commissioned to be apostles and to show the, to show the world that what they were saying and who they were speaking of was actually God, was actually the person whom he claimed to be. Think about this. Imagine, imagine you had a group of 11 men entrusted and eventually become 13 with Matthias and Paul, but just put yourself at Pentecost. Matthias is there around this time. So we've got 12 men who are saying that this man who claimed to be God and rose from the dead had sent them to testify to eternal life and to the truth of this God-man, that they were his witnesses, his ambassadors. 
Would that be kind of hard to believe without a little bit of evidence? I mean, think about this. You're saying this guy rose from the dead, he claimed to be God, and only you 12 are the ones who are going to lead the formation of his institutionalized church? That'd be a little bit hard to believe, right? Especially with the rumors circulating in that time by the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans that the disciples stole the body of Christ, that he didn't really rise from the dead, that his body was just stolen. I mean, think about how difficult it would have been to believe these 12 uneducated, poor, obscure fishermen or ordinary citizens. But we know what Jesus did is he gave them authority by his spirit to proclaim his truth and to authenticate who they were and who they were speaking on behalf. He gave them the supernatural ability to perform signs and wonders, to perform miracles, as the blank said. Um, And my paragraph here continues by saying, just to echo what I just um, emphasized, these supernatural signs, these supernatural miracles demonstrated that the apostles were God's messengers and that their testimony about Jesus Christ was true. Three passages that we're going to read to look at this. Acts 2.43. Can I get a volunteer to read Acts 2.43? Lily, thank you very much. And then Acts 5.12. Michael, you got your hand up? Yeah, you might need a Bible if you're going to read, buddy. Um, And then 2 Corinthians 12.12. Anybody for that one? Macy, thank you very much. So, um, Lily, whenever you're ready, Acts 2.43, go ahead and kick us off with that. Actually, um, Lily, if you don't mind, I want you to start in verse 41 and read through verse 43. So uh, Acts 2, 41 to 43. Very good. So the reason I wanted to do that is, okay, so in this context, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has taken place. People are speaking in languages that they had no idea how to speak before. It was a sign of the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter steps up. Okay, this is the same Peter that some 40 days earlier had denied Jesus, right? He said, I don't know the man. We know the story after Jesus is resurrected. Jesus restores Peter. He commissions him to feed his sheep, to to be the leader, as it were, the spokesperson of the original apostles. And what does Peter do? In Acts two, he preaches arguably the greatest sermon ever been preached in the church in the history of, of the church. I mean, Christ obviously his sermon on the mount is the greatest sermon ever preached, but this this sermon in Acts two is arguably one of, if not the greatest sermons preached in the uh, history of the church, which begins at Pentecost, essentially, and goes on um, to eternity future. When I say the history of the church, I'm talking about the history of the institutionalized church. We're going to talk a little bit about what I mean by that in a few moments, but this is a profound sermon. 
He proclaims that Jesus is everything that the Old Testament prophesied that he would be. He accomplished everything that God had sent him into the world to accomplish. And he preaches that to a Jewish audience. He calls the Jewish audience who had Christ crucified to repentance, and they're heartbroken. They're convicted from this message. And they say, what shall we do? What can we do to be saved? What can we do? To be forgiven. And Peter says, all you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ to be saved. And what's the response? Verse 41 tells us, they received his message, they received his word, they were baptized as an expression of their faith. That's what it means. They said they received his word. That means they they received it by faith. They came to saving faith. They were baptized as an outward expression of that faith. And it says 3,000 people were saved on the spot. You have a mass conversion experience. And it says, what was, and then verse 42, what was the outcome? They, these 3,000 souls, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And then the key verse for us, verse 43, everyone there kept feeling a sense of awe in many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So you see there, The signs, the wonders, the miracles, they testify to the authority in which they preached as Christ's spokespersons, as as Christ's ultimate authority for establishing the foundation of what would become the history of the institutionalized church. Now, verse 42 is important. I just want to comment on it very briefly. Look at what marked the earliest church, okay? This is, this is almost 2,000 years ago. We're coming up, once we hit 2030, we're coming up on the 2,000-year anniversary of Pentecost. The earliest Christians were continually devoted or consistently devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. How does that apply to us? Well, the church should be marked by being devoted to the teachings of the apostles. That's contained in the New Testament. We need to be a church that's devoted to the Word of God. We need to be a church that's devoted to fellowship, gathering together, not just for formal church worship services, but also for the purposes of stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 talk about that. Um, We need to be those who routinely gather together, whether inside the church or, or outside the church, to encourage each other. Um, the breaking of bread, that, that's an expression for communion. We need to be those who partake of the Lord's Supper as Christ institutionalized it in the upper room. And as Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 reiterates for regular practice for Christians gathered together, that the Lord's Supper needs to be regularly practiced in the context of the gathered body of Christ. And then lastly, prayer. The church needs to be a people devoted to prayer. We need to be those who pray, again, corporately during uh, Sunday services, Wednesday nights as we have here, um, Sunday school classes, discipleship classes. Prayer needs to be a bedrock in the church. So those are just some key elements that were present right at the outset of the history of the church. And by God's grace, in every generation since then, over the past 2,000 years, every faithful church has been marked by 
those characteristics. Now, um, Acts 5.12, Michael, go ahead and read that for us, please. Very good. So, um, signs and wonders taking place. uh, Just continually affirming the authority and the authenticity of these men being Christ's primary, uh, primary individuals of authority and establishing the foundation of the church. Um, and then 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Macy, whenever you're ready for that. And that's the key, my friends. How do you know if somebody's truly an apostle? How do we know that those who claim to be apostles today are not true apostles? Well, in the authority of this text, the signs, the evidence of a true apostle is signs and wonders and miracles. This was something they could just do. This this wasn't something that they could every once in a blue moon do uh, if they just had enough faith or if people prayed enough or um, if people, uh, you know, were were, were open-minded enough to it. No, my friends. The apostles could perform signs and wonders and miracles whenever they needed to do it. Somebody got sick, they could heal. Paul got bit by a snake and didn't die. You know, he got bit by a poisonous snake at the end of Acts, didn't die, and the people thought he was a god because of that. They were terrified of him. Um, you know, the, 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 it's not like on TV where people say, man, I've, I've got a headache, and the guy lays hands on him and says, oh, my headache's better. My friends, th- this wasn't something that could be manipulated. It wasn't a person who had um, a sore leg because one leg is slightly longer than the other, and they evened out the length of the legs so that their quote-unquote leg pain or back pain was fixed. No, this, this would be tantamount. Let me tell you what this is. This would be tantamount. This would be likened to going to a children's hospital or the, Ander, the, the um, Anderson Center in Houston and going in there and healing everybody who had terminal cancer on the spot. That's the kind of signs and wonders and miracles that was being performed. And if there's true apostles today, and they're not walking in this aspect of the apostolic office, they are in rank sin and rebellion. If people can do this today, and they hold the apostolic office, which, spoiler alert, nobody does, um, but for the sake of argument, if they did, if they did, they should be at every single hospital and healing people for the glory of God and sharing the gospel with them. Um, but my friends, there was, only, there was really only 13. 13 apostles, big A apostles, who were the authority of the first century church. They wrote and oversaw what would become our New Testament. They had a specific task for a specific purpose in a specific period of time. And that office served its purpose, and God has his reasons for why it doesn't continue today. Um, But we need to be very, very clear with our friends um, who, for whatever reason, believe there are modern-day apostles 
and just take them to Scripture in love and say, my, my friends, this needs to be modeled by current apostles if there are. Signs, wonders, and miracles. Those are the accompanying evidence of a true apostle. Now, moving on, Busnitz in his teacher's guide says that the apostolic period comprises a foundational age in church history, Ephesians 2.20. I'm going to read that. It's a very familiar text. We've read it several times. I'll start in verse 19. I'll read verses 19 to 22 because they hang together. Paul says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the apostles, they're the foundation. Their teaching is the foundation upon which the church institution has been erected for some 2,000 years. Jesus commissioned them. The Spirit gave them the wisdom and the words and the truths to proclaim in their teachings and in their writings. And as they say, the rest is history. That brings us today, some 2,000 years later, God is still performing His work in His church through the testimony and the instruction contained in the New Testament as given to us by the apostles, the foundation of the church appointed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When John, the last surviving apostle, died around the year 100 A.D., the apostolic age came to a close. That is what um, Busnitz notes in his teacher's guide. As we mentioned last week, uh, there is some speculation as to when John passed away and when the New Testament age ceased uh, to exist. Well, I should say, uh, not the New Testament age, the, um, the, the period of history in which the New Testament was being developed. That's a better way of putting it. Um, There's speculation as to whether that ended in the end of the 60s or if it ended sometime in the 90s. Uh, Again, godly men and women disagree on that, but uh, Busnitz holds to the view that John died around the year 100, which means his his corpus, his gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation would have been uh, produced sometime in the early to mid-90s. So... um, if you haven't filled in that blank in your workbook, that is the answer there. You could put 100. You could also put 70 uh, as, a, as another potential answer for that. Now, by way of conclusion, before we move on to Roman numeral 2, Busnitz notes that the apostolic age was a unique and unrepeated period in church history. The church leaders who lived in the following centuries did not consider themselves to be apostles, Instead, they viewed the apostles and their writings as authoritative and foundational, occupying a distinguished place in the establishment of the church. Now, I, I figured you guys would be interested in this. I actually have some quotes that I want to share with you all from some of these figures who did not view themselves as apostles. These are some of the earliest Christian leaders. They were used profoundly by God. If you've ever heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's a lot of testimonies about these men and how God used them in the um, 
what's called the patristic era of church history. That's uh, from the second century to the fifth. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, Lord willing. But I just want to read you a few quotes that proves that the earliest Christian leaders after the first century, so going into the second century and onward, these figures recognized that they were not apostles, there were no other apostles, and the apostolic age of church history had come to a conclusion with their death during the first century. The first quote that I want to share comes from Clement. He wrote this actually almost at the very end of the first century. This, this was likely written sometime between 80 and 90 A.D. This is actually one of the arguments for why some believe that John passed away in the 70s and that he completed his writing uh, prior to 70 A.D. Clement notes, quote, The apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done so from God. Christ, therefore, was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments, then, were made in an orderly way according to the will of God. Having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the Word of God with full assurance of the Holy Spirit, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. And thus, preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be elders and deacons of those who would believe afterwards. So this figure, Clement, he distinguishes the apostles from those of whom would be first fruits of their labors, namely elders and deacons in the church. He doesn't say that additional apostles were raised up. He's not identifying himself as an apostle. He's saying that the disciples of the apostles, the leaders who the apostles themselves would raise up, they're not additional apostles, they're elders and they're deacons. Ignatius also says in a um, letter that we have that I do not issue these commands, the commands in his letter, as if I were an apostle, but as your fellow servant, I put you in mind of them. This is from the epistle of Ignatius to the, Antio the Antiochians. Um, this is sometime during the second century when that would have been penned. Ignatius, again, does not equate himself as an apostle. He distinguishes himself from the, apostle, uh, from the apostles as a fellow servant, namely an elder in the church. Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, notes the following. Now we're getting into the third century here. He writes, in a sermon preached on 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, he says, I wish to give you an example of friendship. Friends, that is, friends according to Christ, surpass fathers and sons. For tell me not of friends of the present day, since this good thing has also passed away with others. But consider, in the time of the apostles, I speak not of the chief men, but of believers themselves generally. All, he says, were of one heart and soul, and not one of them said that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, and distribution was made unto each according 
as any one had need. Acts 4, 32 and 35. There were then, in the time of the apostles, no such words as mine and thine. This was friendship, that a man should not consider his goods his own, but his neighbors, that his possessions belong to another. So the point of sharing that is Chrysostom makes another marked distinction between the time of the apostles, the, the fellowship they had, the generosity they had during that special first century period of church history and what is being experienced at the time he would have preached that sermon sometime um, in the third century. And last quote that I'm going to read comes from Wayne Grudem, uh, modern systematic theologian. In fact, his systematic theology textbook is the best-selling textbook today. This is what he notes in regard to the apostles. He writes, It is noteworthy that no major leader in the history of the church, not Athanasius or Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Whitfield, nobody has taken to himself the title of apostle or let himself be called an apostle. If any in modern times want to take the title apostle to themselves, they immediately raise the suspicion that they may be motivated by inappropriate pride and desires for self-exaltation, along with excessive ambition and a desire for much more authority in the church than any one person should rightfully have. Well, my friends, if you take anything away from what we've spoken of up to this point, it's simply this. The the apostles were raised up by Jesus Christ in the first century to lay the foundation of the church. Their teaching was marked by signs and wonders and miracles. And there are no longer apostles today, and there hasn't been since the first century. That's the takeaway. The apostles served a particular purpose for a specific time. They laid the foundation of the church. They confirmed their teaching. They confirmed their authority by signs and wonders and miracles. And since that time, there has not been any apostles, nor will there ever be apostles in the, in the big A sense of the term, until, well, forever. <laughs> until forever. Uh, they served their purpose that the Lord had for them. Does anybody have any questions on this point before we move on to Roman numeral 2? Right on. Well, in Roman numeral 2, the church is born, the church institutionalized, I should say. And again, I keep stressing that because we're going to talk a little bit about what we mean when we say the church is born in Acts 2. But to start... There's a few blanks we need to get through. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus promised that he would build his church. That promise began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. That's the first blank. That promise began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in the year AD 30. There's blank two. First blank is Pentecost. Second blank is the year 80, excuse me, the year AD 30. And Acts 2 records what happened on that dramatic day. And I'm going to read Matthew 16, 18, since that's the text included in that first paragraph. Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, that you are Peter, 
And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So, Jesus promises, I'm going to build my church. Now, I do have a question for group discussion. This is a very important theological question um, that we need to consider together. And that question is this. I want to hear your thoughts. Jesus, in the first century, he promises he's going to build his church. Future tense. But with that in mind, my question is, in what sense did the church begin before Pentecost? Really, in what sense did the church begin all the way back in the Garden of Eden? The reason why this is an important question is because it gets to the heart and soul of what the church really and truly is and why we should distinguish between what happens in Acts 2 and what God was doing in the centuries and millennia even before Acts 2. I want you guys to think about that. What do you all think? In what sense was the church a reality before the garden, or excuse me, before um, Pentecost, having begun in the Garden of Eden? How, could, how, can we, how can we tease that thought out a little bit? Yeah, what is the church? Let's start there. That's a good question. What well, what 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 is the church? Is the church a building? No. No. What is the church? A body of people worshiping God together. Okay, a body of people worshiping God together. Now, is that believers and unbelievers, or just believers? Just believers. Just believers, right? So the term for church, the Greek term is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. That's what the church narrowly, if you look at the term, the concept. It's those who have been called out, namely those who have been called out by God's grace to be saved. Those who have been saved by God's grace. Those who have been called out of sin, out of the world, to be redeemed. Okay, that's the church. Now, when did that start happening in in the history of humanity? Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve were redeemed from their sin. And from the Garden of Eden until the return of Christ, God has been calling out sinners from the world, from their sin, rescuing them, redeeming them from their sin, and calling them into His body, His ecclesia, His church. Okay? That is a reality, depending on how long you view the age of the world, which for me, I view it about six to 7,000 years. God's been building a people for some six or 7,000 years. Okay? So, my question is, what do we make of Christ's words in Matthew 16? He's saying future. I will build my church. Future. What do we think we should do about that? Right. It's a really good thought. Very good. No, I mean, that was a great thought. I'm trying to stretch your brains, though, because this is, again, like, this, this, is, this is an important issue because it, it has a lot of bearing, really, on how you read the Bible and how you understand um, the flow of redemptive history. Because there are some Christians who would say that what I just said about 
the church beginning in the garden? They would say, absolutely not. The church would never begin before Acts 2 because Jesus is speaking future tense. Does anyone have any other thoughts before I give you my crack at it after studying the issue and, and reflecting on the issue? Okay, so um, this is what I've, I've written in my notes just so I wouldn't botch this when we came to it. The church, the ecclesia, as the people who God would save throughout history at the appointed time, began long before Pentecost. So the ecclesia, the church, began long before Pentecost. However, the church as an institution, when I say institution, I mean a visible, specified reality. Because think about it, before Acts 2, before Jesus came, where did all of God's people primarily reside? What nation did they belong to? Israel, right? Okay. So the church as an institution wasn't around. Israel was the institution. Israel was the visible, established, solidified entity in which God's people, His church, His called out ones existed. But then you get to Acts 2. By this point, the Jews by and large, have rejected God's Messiah, have rejected God Himself, right? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. They have rejected God Himself. They crucified Him. They put Him to death. Now, we know many Jews come to saving faith, but even to this day, and for the past 2,000 years, most Jews, by comparison, most Israelites, most members of that visible, established, solidified institution has rejected Jesus. But the institution, the visible, established, solidified institution that has received Jesus by faith, we call that the church. And my, my conviction, um, as has been shared by many Baptists throughout um, their history, going all the way back to the 1600s, my, my conviction is that the church as an institution... Okay, we know the church as a concept goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But the church as an institution is the eschatological Israel. The church is the fulfillment for which Israel was to be. It was, it, the, the, the church is the, the consummation of how Israel was supposed to function throughout Old Testament history. Now, how do I get there? How do we get to that conclusion? Well, go to 1 Peter Chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2, in verses 4 through 10. We'll go, I'll read the whole thing. So Pete, there, there's a lot of debate on who's Peter writing to. Is it a primarily Jewish audience? Is it a primarily Gentile audience? Is it a combination of the two? Regardless of who he's writing to, he's writing to members of the institutionalized church. This is about 30 to 40 years after Pentecost, depending on when he wrote it. But listen to what Peter does. This is fascinating. First off, he describes salvation. He, he describes what has happened to these people receiving this letter. 
He says, And after coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is precious and choice in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble, the people who've rejected Christ, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. Verse 9 is the key. Verse 9 and 10. Listen to this. But you... Those who I'm writing to, Christians, whether Jewish or Gentile, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My friends, if you've got a Bible... That has in verse 9 and verse 10 all capital letters or italicized letters, you'll notice there those phrases that Peter applies to these first century Christians were the same designation that God applied to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. What's Peter doing? He's saying, Christians, you are just as much the people of God today. You are just as much a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You're just as much those realities as believers in the old covenant community of Israel were. You're just as much. You're just as much saved. You're just as much a part of God's family. You're just as much an inheritor of all the promised blessings as old covenant Israel. And in fact, if we can take it a step further, you are now the consummation of what Israel was to be. Namely the witness agent and the ambassadors of God Most High before watching world. The church is the eschatological Israel. All the word eschatological means is the the end goal or the purpose for which something existed. The church does not replace Israel. The church fulfills it because as an institution, whether you're talking about the nation of Israel or you're talking about the church as an institution, God's people has always been saved in the same way from the garden until the return of Christ. And as such, they are just as much equal inheritors of the same divine blessings. So if you're in here today, if I could encourage you, you, every single person in here, if you're a Christian this morning, You are a member of that chosen race, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, that people for God's own possession. You are just as much a member as any Jew was in the Old Testament or as any other person has been that's ever been saved. You can take that to the bank. That is a promise you can claim for yourself. I hope that's a great encouragement to you this morning if you're in Christ. You are a member not only of God's institutionalized church by virtue of being on this side of the cross, but even more importantly than that, 
You're a member of his ecclesia. You're a member of his, his people that he set apart to himself. I hope that's a great encouragement for you to consider. Any questions on that before we move on further? I know it's a lot. Some of you might feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant, but I hope it's rich. I hope, I hope it's rich. I mean, think about it. Think about Peter. He's, 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 he's taking truths that were given thousands of years beforehand. And he's saying this is just as much yours as it was theirs. Because you belong to God. That's beautiful to think about. Truly, truly beautiful truth to think about. Um, but we're back now, back to our um, workbook here. Um, Buznitz, in the second paragraph, he says, About 120 followers of Jesus, including the apostles, were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came to indwell and empower them. The coming of the Spirit was marked by the appearance of fire and the loud sound of rushing wind. Similar phenomena mark God's presence in the Old Testament. Okay, so we're going to read a couple of passages. Um, I'll read the Acts 2, 1-4 passage. I would like a volunteer to read Exodus 19, 16, 18. Sai, L, you can take 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 12. I'm going to go ahead and read Acts 2, 1 to 4. Luke recounts that when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, they referring to the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay, um, sigh that Exodus passage whenever you're ready. Very good. And LA first Kings nineteen, eleven and twelve, whenever you're ready. Very good. So, yeah, so, I mean, dramatic events throughout the Old Testament paralleling the dramatic event that accompanied the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. Now, um, regarding Pentecost, many of you guys have heard Pentecost a lot, probably, maybe in church, probably like, what is Pentecost? Well, Buznitz summarizes it quite helpfully for us. He says that Pentecost was one of the major feast days celebrated by the Jewish people. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 16 I'll read for us. This is Pentecost, Deuteronomy 16, 9 and 10. 
You shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. Um, so Pentecost, major feast day celebrated by the Jewish people as established in that passage in Deuteronomy 16. For that reason, the celebration of Pentecost, many Jewish pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem from throughout the Roman Empire, and these pilgrims lived in other parts of the Roman Empire, and therefore they spoke native languages other than Aramaic or Greek. Those were the primary languages spoken in Jerusalem. Those are the two blanks, Aramaic and Greek. This is why the, the, the miracle in Acts 2 is so profound. If you go to Acts 2, verses 1 through 11. We're not going to read the whole account. We've read it before. But for our purposes, I want us to read together verse 5 and following. I'm going to read it. But think about this, guys. Think about Pentecost. You've got Jewish pilgrims, Jewish believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire who speak in different languages than the predominant languages of that day, which were Greek and Aramaic. And they're coming together to celebrate um, excuse me, they're coming together to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, as was prescribed for them in the Old Testament. Not all of these people would have been able to understand each other by virtue of speaking different languages. Well, after the Spirit is poured out upon um, the 120 earliest followers of Christ that were present here, notice what happens. I'll go ahead and skip down. To verse 7 and following, just because it, it really gets to the heart and soul of the follow-up question I want to ask you. Verse 7, uh, they were amazed and astonished, the crowd, okay? The 120 disciples, they're speaking in languages different from Greek and Aramaic. Verse 7, why, not, why are not all of these, or excuse me, why are these men who are Galileans speaking in the tongue to which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? So imagine this. You've got, you've got uh, several different languages represented from Jewish believers who were spread all throughout the Roman Empire during that period in time. And all of a sudden, they see these Galilean men and women speaking their languages that they can understand. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine? Think about this. What if we had 10 people from the Middle East and Europe and Central America 
Um, all come in here right now. And all of a sudden, we can understand what they're saying as they're speaking in their language. Could you imagine that? Or put it this way. Imagine if you went to Asia and you spoke as if you were speaking English, but God supernaturally empowered you to, to, to speak forth a, in their language words that they could understand. So in your mind, you're understanding it as if I'm speaking it in my native tongue, but God is supernaturally allowing the words that you speak to register in their language. And you use that for the purpose of sharing the gospel, for the purpose of proclaiming the glory of God and the truthfulness of Jesus. That's what was happening here in Acts 2. These men had never been able to speak. These women had never been able to speak in these other languages prior to this moment when the Spirit of God is outpoured upon them. And it's a powerful sign of what's going to take place. Remember, what is the purpose of Acts? Acts 1.8. What does Acts 1.8 show us? It, it, it shows us how the Gospel does what? Save. Well, it saves, yeah. But notice it. Where it says there's... There's four places or four things referenced there. Jerusalem. Say it out loud, Hannah. You've got it right in front of you. Yep. Say it. But yeah. Right, right. Acts 1 8. So, so think about this. Luke is writing Acts. Don't miss this. Luke is writing Acts to testify to how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the nations. Okay? This moment in Acts 2 is foreshadowing how that's going to happen and how it's continued to happen for the past 2,000 years. At the very beginning of the book, the Spirit of God is outpoured upon these Jewish believers. They now speak the languages of the nations of which they would eventually go to evangelize. Think about that. Right from the very beginning of the book, it's a, it's a really incredible foreshadowing of how that gospel is going to spread in accordance with Luke's purpose for writing his book in the first place. It's going to go from Jerusalem. It's eventually going to spread to all these nations that speak all these different languages. And God, by virtue of giving these people the ability to speak in those foreign languages, He's essentially saying, I'm going to be faithful to fulfill that promise. My gospel is going to go forth to these people. I'm going to be glorified and worshipped in the languages that I'm giving you to speak. What a remarkable testimony to the faithfulness of God and the power of God to fulfill His promises. We're going to conclude. There's two more blanks that you need. I'm going to conclude today by reading what Buznitz says. And if you have any questions, we can talk about them briefly before we close in prayer. But um, Buznitz notes, In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit gave the apostles and possibly others with them, I believe he gave all of them the ability, but nevertheless, um, the Holy Spirit gave these Christians the miraculous ability to speak in foreign languages they had never learned. Leaving the upper room, they went throughout Jerusalem preaching the gospel in these foreign dialects. When pilgrims to Jerusalem heard the apostles speaking fluently in their native tongues, they were amazed. This miraculous gift is known as the gift of tongues. That's that blank there, the gift of tongues. The Holy Spirit used it on the day of Pentecost 
not only to draw a crowd, but also to demonstrate that the gospel of Jesus Christ would extend to all nations, to all people groups. Addressing the crowd that had gathered to witness this miracle, the Apostle Peter preached a powerful gospel sermon. You can read that in Acts 2, verses 14 to 36. And in response to that sermon, as we mentioned earlier, some 3,000 people believed. They professed faith in Christ and they were baptized as a symbolic demonstration of their faith and repentance. On this incredible day, the church, as a visible, established, solidified institution, was born. And that brings us now to the conclusion of Roman numeral 2. Does anybody have any closing thoughts, questions, or anything before we roll into the um, sanctuary? We've got about six minutes till service starts. Good, no questions? Well, let me just say this, guys. Thank you all. And this is some deep stuff, but thank you all for hanging in there. Um, when you get a chance this week, just because we didn't get to read it, read, just read the whole chapter of Acts 2, particularly Peter's sermon in verses 14 to 36. I mentioned how uh, it's one of, if not the greatest, sermon preached uh, on this side of Pentecost. It's a remarkable sermon. It's thoroughly gospel-centered, brings incredible glory to God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've never read it before, or if you have read it before, regardless, I would just encourage you to read that. But let's close in prayer, uh, and then we'll roll into the sanctuary for our time of corporate worship. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time of worship, for the privilege that it is to, to talk about the deep truths of your word and to consider how the promises and the truths that have been proclaimed on every page in Holy Writ are just as applicable and just as relevant to us as Christians living in 2021. Father, grow us in our faith. Forgive us of the times in which we have neglected the study of your word, neglected the, to pray to you, neglected to worship you. Father, help us to be those who who long to be in your presence, who long to be with other believers, who long to worship you. Change our hearts, Father. Make us vibrant, passionate worshipers of you who worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, may that be our prayer now as we, um, as we prepare to go to corporate worship here. I pray that our time would be refreshing for our souls and that it would be spiritually, um, it would be spiritual worship in your sight. I pray that you would bless each and every person and the families represented in this room as they seek to prepare to begin a new week. God, help them to be your salt and light in the context you've placed them in. We thank you again for this morning, Lord. We ask for your blessing now as we head over to corporate worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.